0: So the word for today um, comes from John chapter 4, and it's verses 1 to 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. Oh, my name is uh, Matthew Watson. I serve as the pastor here at uh, Christ City Church. Uh, and the uh, truth of it is, I mean, m- more than being a pastor here, I'm just a fellow follower of Jesus that's uh, each day trying to uh, walk with the Lord and to uh, understand what it means to follow him and to have my joy and my delight in him daily. And I'm grateful to be uh, in the company of others who are on a similar journey. Um, I, uh, If you are new to Christ City, I'm really glad that you're here. I know that it's it, it can be just really quite intimidating uh, to come into a room sort of full of strangers to, to take the risk to come in. And to, um, if you're an introvert like me, then you're like, oh, my gosh, a bunch of strangers. Perfect. That's my joy. Like it, but you took a risk. And so I just we, we want to recognize that and say that we're delighted that you're here. And thank you for coming and for coming into this place. I hope that um, that what you experience is welcome, not just from the church, but from the Lord. Um, for the past several weeks uh, here at Christ City, we have been walking through the Gospel of John, one of the first books in the New Testament, and it recounts the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we've just been walking through it. And one of the points that we've sought to make each week as we have made our way through John is the, is the chief point that John is trying to make in his whole writing of the Gospel, and it's just this, that he is writing so that people might have belief in Jesus, He sort of centers and anchors his thesis statement towards the end of his book in John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 when he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What uh, John is trying to focus on is telling Jesus' story in such a way as to invigorate belief in the life of the reader. He, he wants the hearers uh, to encounter this same life-giving Jesus that's in the Gospels, and so he's writing in such a way so that hearts and affections can be turned towards Christ. That's the central focus of John. And as we've walked through this, this has uh, been the anchoring Uh, Tenant of all of the stories that we've encountered so far as we've looked at John the Baptist as we looked at the stories of Philip and Nathaniel As we've looked at the wedding at Cana as we looked at the story of Nicodemus All of these stories in one way or another have had their aim to stir up our belief and faith in Christ That that's what John is doing with each turn with each movement with each chapter He's trying to point our gaze towards the one that longs to captivate our hearts Today's passage chronicles another encounter that Jesus has with a woman from a region outside of Israel called Samaria. And the conversation, the encounter, it's actually, it's quite amazing in, in a number of ways. Jesus sort of, when I read this, he's like part, you know, like wise Jedi, sage, and then like like street magician. Like he just knows things about the woman, sort of freaks her out a little bit. I, I, hopefully there's grace that I called the Messiah, a street magician, and Jedi master. But it's just, the story is just layered with like innuendo and uh, with, with cultural uh, trapping that is just, um, it's just rich to it. So let's just jump right in. Verses uh, 4. Um, now, uh, Je- he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Just sort of holding there for a minute, John is setting the stage in the story, and even in that, there's history in it, and he's, and he's even giving you the time of the day, all of which will come into play later. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food on a, on a food run. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The the, the story just starts off with something that that would have startled the first century reader. Verse 4, now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Jews actively avoided Samaria. The, The woman mentions it later on. The two communities the Jewish community and the Samaritan community they just they had a long standing hatred for one another. Jesus actually, he didn't have to technically go through Samaria. You see, most pious Jews that were traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is what Jesus was doing, he had just been in Jerusalem where he emptied out the temple and now he's traveling back to his hometown in Galilee. Most Jews that would have traveled that road, they wouldn't have taken the shortest route, which would have taken them through Samaria. They would have taken a route that would have taken them twice as long to go around the region of Samaria. And the reasons for this animosity between the two groups is part history and part history part theology. The origins of the animosity, it stretched back hundreds of years to the days of the Assyrian conquerors who ruled the land of Israel and Samaria. During the Assyrian reign, the Samaritans emerged as descendants of these two groups. They uh, were the remnant of native Israelites and then the foreign colonists, the Assyrians uh, that moved in and Uh, this intermarriage between uh, Jews in Samaria and Assyrian conquerors, uh, a new cultural, a new ethnic group uh, was established that also had blended aspects of religion. And so because of the blending ethnicities and the blending of faith practices, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Israelites considered Samaritans pagans and infidels. And Israelites, they felt justified in their disdain for Samaritans, both along ethnic lines and religious lines. Samaritans had incorporated some of the Assyrian pagan practices into their worship. And so Samaritans, they didn't regard Jerusalem and Mount Zion as the mountain upon which God fears needed to go and worship. And that fact just angered and infuriated uh, Israel. Further, the disdain, as pastor and theologian Brenda Salter McNeil notes... Uh, was the view that Samaria was actually the place of the uncouth it was the place of the of the criminal and the barbarian the derelict of society they took up residence in Samaria, so Samaria had become the place it was the place of refuge for all of the outlaws of Judea, which coming from a family of outlaws i 'm like eh, not bad, they throw better parties. Um, But Samaria, they were willing to receive any of the outlaws or any of the criminals or the refugees from justice. They could find shelter in Samaria. And so the violators of any of the Jewish laws uh, and those that had been excommunicated from uh, the Jewish community, they uh, betook themselves to safety in Samaria. And their numbers greatly increased. And as their numbers increased, so too did the disdain of the Jews towards the Samaritans. Jews saw Samaritans as the other. They called them terrible and dehumanizing names. They would call them dogs. And by the time Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman, Jewish thought believed that it was unclean to simply socialize with a Samaritan. So the two groups, they didn't worship together. They didn't live together. They didn't live in the same communities together. They didn't eat together. Nothing. This resulting uh, hostile segregation between the two groups, it was so poignant um, that Jews believed that if they were walking near a Samaritan during uh, the high point of the sun, if their shadows crossed one another, then the Jewish person would be viewed as unclean. It had gotten to that level of hostility. And it was into this painful history that John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The statement would have alerted the first century Jewish readership that Jesus, uh, doing the traveling, he's going straight into the places that were avoided. And what he was risking was his reputation, his vocation as a rabbi, and in a very real way, even his own life to travel through this place. And even still, Jesus arrives at a town in the region of Samaria called Sychar. He arrives at midday, in the hottest part of the day, and He's thirsty. Because he's been traveling and it's hot and you get thirsty. I know it hasn't been hot around here for a long time and we might have forgotten. (laughs) But Jesus arrives and he just comes to the well and he's just thirsty. And the Samaritan woman is also there. She's drawing water and Jesus asks her for a cup to drink, which both of them know is an act that would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. And Jesus moves past all of that and moves forward. They just, Jews and Samaritans, they wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have uh, drank together. And that's why the Samaritan woman responds in verse 9. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There's almost indignation in the statement. Conversation goes back and forth uh, um, between Jesus and the woman. And Jesus sort of speaks cryptically about living water. And then um, we learn a bit more about the woman. We come to learn that she's had five previous husbands and that the man that she's living with now, it isn't her husband either. We pick up the story in verse 13. He says to her, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I'll give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give will become in them a spring of water welling up for eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to this water to draw water when Jesus references living water the other ways to translate that are um, fresh water or clean water or water that runs which would have been tastier and more refreshing than water that you pull from a well and so she uh, thinks oh maybe he's talking about another source that I'm unaware of verse 16 he told her go and call your husband and come back she said I have no husband she replied Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you uh, have is not your husband. All you've just said is quite true. A few quick things to note here. First, I want to remind you that um, this encounter is actually taking place in the middle of the day. And remember that this woman is alone. And typically, the drawing of water in the Samaritan culture would have been something that was done in the cooler parts of the day and would have been done in community. Because the women uh, of the community would have done it. They wouldn't have wanted to do it together. It was an opportunity to socialize. They would have done it in the cool part of the day because it was physical labor. It was hard to do. And so it's easier to do when it's cooler. However, this woman is alone, and she's in the hottest part of the day. And the implication is the reason that she's there in the middle of the day and that she's alone is because she's being shunned by the community, presumably because of her sexual past. She's there because she's been outcast by others. She's there because she's a five-time divorcee. The thing about divorce in this context is that a woman actually couldn't divorce a man. It was only a man who could divorce a woman. And a man could actually divorce a woman for any number of reasons. He could divorce a woman if there was some physical abnormality that was discovered after marriage. He could divorce a woman if she was unable to bear children. He could divorce a woman if she just wasn't a good cook. And so five different times this woman has been told... I don't want you no more. She's been rejected. That's why she's at the well at midday by herself. And still Jesus is there in a Samaritan town talking with a woman at midday. All things that good Jewish rabbis ought not do and in places they ought not be. And part of the reason he's there is because he's thirsty. And so is she. Jesus doesn't come in with demands. He doesn't come in with condemnation and he doesn't even come in with a show of power. I mean, just like a few verses ago, Jesus turned water into wine. He can probably make some stones into a popsicle if he wanted to. Like he doesn't come in with any of that. He comes in. He just says, I'm thirsty. And I know you're here because you like to drink some water, too. He doesn't come in with the force of his divinity or even his maleness or Jewishness or rabbiness. He enters as a thirsty person. In the simple request for a drink of water, he's actually placing himself in the posture of neediness and shifts the power dynamic and the cultural dynamic to the woman because she can refuse. She can walk away. She can leave this man dusty and thirsty and all alone. He actually enters the scene with vulnerability, and that's what's bound up in the question of the woman when he just says, Will you give me a drink? From there, the conversation between the woman and Jesus takes a decidedly theological turn. The woman begins asking Jesus about the location of worship, which feels so technical to us. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit, in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I, I know that a Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain every everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm, I'm He. The woman's actually asking a heart question. She's asking if she's worshiping rightly. She's asking if the things that she has staked her, her faith and her life on, if those are actually the right things. But, but she's using language that she knows. She's using language about, okay, is it Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship? Is it Mount Zion? I'm not sure, but what she's really asking is a matter of the heart. Am I, am I worshiping the right things and in the right way? She's saying, where where should I place my trust? and, And where should I place my belief? And what Jesus effectively says is, it's not this hill or that hill, but rather it's me. I'm the one to place your hope and your trust in. For in me you'll find life. I think this conversation, by the way, that Jesus will have all through the gospel. And it takes place through each of the gospels and Matthews and Marks and Lukes. And it isn't captured the same way, uh, the question isn't always upon which hill should we worship, but it is always captured in, into what ought I place my belief. And I think it's true for us as well. We uh, might not be weighing Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, but if we're not careful, we will weigh Mount Career Path or Mount Fame or Mount Comfort or Mount Family. And what we're asking is upon which altar should I lay my life? Last week, Marissa posed a question to us that uh, made its way into our small group conversations. And the question was, in what things have we placed our belief that we might have life? The question was, believe in blank and have life. How would you fill in the blank? And so what are you believing so that you might have life? Are you believing in career or status or legacy or financial security or a vacation, which was my answer? Because there are days where I think if I just had a break, if I could just sleep a little longer, if I could just put my feet up a little longer, if I could just gaze out into a beach, I'm not really much of a beach person, but whatever, like mountains, you know, a coffee shop in a city that is new to me, if I just had it, then I could have life. And Jesus is saying it's not on this mountain or that mountain. It's in me that life resides. It's in me that you have the possibility of rest that is truly rest. This is what the woman is essentially asking and Jesus' response is, believe in me. Give up on the mountains. Give up on the struggle. Give up on the men. Give up on the shame. Just give it up and believe in me and you'll have life. At this point, I think it might be helpful for us to remember where we've come from so far in John's Gospel. One of the things that's often helpful for us to note, particularly as we move through this gospel, is to notice the juxtapositions that John makes. That John will lay lay alongside two differing things or two different stories, and he's wanting to make a point about life in Jesus by putting these two dissimilar things together. And previously in chapter 3 of John, Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus. Andrea Ackerman, who's on our staff here at Christ City, she preached a couple of weeks ago. Just to review, Nicodemus was a Jewish teacher of the law of Moses, and he comes to Jesus at night. And he's asking him various spiritual questions because he's curious about Jesus. And so he approaches Jesus, and and Jesus fields these questions from Nicodemus, and uh, still Jesus calls Nicodemus to believe in him as the Son of God. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, it's not about your heritage. It's not even about your hard work or your rule following. It's about your relationship with God, the one who knows you deeply and who loves you passionately. It's not about being born into the right family or the right set of circumstances. It's about new birth that is found in Jesus. John is laying the story of Nicodemus right alongside the story of the woman at the well. With Nicodemus, we see a man who is a Pharisee, he has power, he has status, he's an insider, he has education, but he comes to Jesus at night. And Nicodemus is slow to believe, but he does eventually believe, but he's slow to believe. We don't see his belief until the end of John. The woman at the well, she is a woman. She's a Samaritan. She is one of the outsiders. She's not an insider into the Jewish faith. She's powerless. She's an outcast. She it comes to Jesus, or Jesus comes to her rather, in the middle of the day and her faith is immediate. Nicodemus is a man that approaches Jesus, but Jesus is a man that approaches the Samaritan woman. We know Nicodemus's name, the Samaritan, remains unnamed. And placing these two stories of John 3 and John 4, Alongside one another, John is making a statement. He's making several statements, really. And one of the biggest things that he is saying is this. Come to Jesus. Just come to Christ. Whether you come at night or the middle of the day, just come to him. Whether you come wearing the clothes of honor or you're shrouded in shame, you can come to him. Whether your past is spotless and celebrated or just broken and jaded, that you can come to Jesus that whether you've been embraced by the masses or rejected five times over, Jesus will meet you and he will not turn you away. And he offers to you life. The story of the Samaritan woman concludes in John 4 with her running back to town and telling the entire town that she's discovered the Messiah. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, probably should have took that with her, but it would have slowed her down. Jesus was thirsty. She's like, thirsty, here you go. Fill it up. I got to (laughs) go. She went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I suspect some of those folks in the town were like, (laughs) oh, everything. (laughs) And she's like, yes, 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 and yes. But you can come to him too. And as a result of the woman's faith, the entire town comes to Jesus. Many of the Samaritans, verse 39, from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Verse 42. And they go to Jesus, they meet with Jesus, and then verse 42, the story ends up, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have not heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world, not just of Jerusalem, not just of those that worship on Mount Zion, and not just Samaria or those of us that worship on Mount Gerizim, but he's the Savior of the world, the Samaritan woman, the one who was the outcast and the looked down upon, she becomes the hero of the story. Today, there's a church that's actually built uh, in her honor at the very site of Jacob's Well. St. Fatini Church, it's a Greek Orthodox church built on the site. It's a, it's a gorgeous church and it's built to honor the unnamed woman who told the community in Sychar about the Savior. In the area surrounding uh, the church, there still remain cultural tensions between Jews and Palestinians and Christians. Last year, I had a chance to visit this church, and the priest who tends the church there got a picture of us. I have beard envy <laughs> of my man. <laughs> that's the well that's still there. You can still go, and if you're thirsty, you can take a drink. We were told when we were visiting with them of tragic stories of violence and how the previous priest was murdered by Jewish settlers there in the church 40 years ago. The priest that was killed was um, this gentleman's mentor. And yet despite the turmoil surrounding him and this well, he continues to pray and he's an artist. And he makes art that reminds the world that there is still living water available to anyone who would come. And it's still, you still have the opportunity, whatever your background, whatever your story, however broken it is that you walk in, he'll still give you a cup and remind you of where living water resides. And when you come, he continues to ask pilgrims, so where is your Samaria? Where are the boundaries that Christ is calling you to cross for the sake of his kingdom? Where is the place that you feel compelled to go through? And he would also ask you, where is your sikkar? The town the woman returned to to share the good news, where is, where is your cigar? To who, What people or who are the people God is sending you in order to tell them of the one who knows everything about you and loves you deeply? And of most importance, what he would want you to know is that there is still a well and Christ Jesus himself welcomes you and refreshes you when you're thirsty. And he'll say, drink of me. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are our living water that refreshes our soul. You are the one that we look to. There are things that um, refresh us momentarily, but you are the only one that refreshes us eternally. God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, that you would stir in us. That we would hear you beckoning to us, that, you, that we would hear you saying to us, you, can, "You come to me, I'm coming to you, come to me. We don't have to be one way or another. We don't have to have our stuff together. We don't have to be all put together before we come along. God, that's not your way. We don't even have to have like a, maybe not our whole life put together, but like if I could just get a month, you know, where I'm like put together, like you don't even require Like it's, no, just come right now. Come as you are. God, in whatever, whatever hills that we've been worshiping on, whatever places we've been, that have just been the idols of our lives that we've, that we've laid our, our, ourselves upon, whatever are the things that um, have made up the constitution of our identities that aren't you, Lord, I pray that you would um, stir in us to lay those things down and to look to you to experience your embrace and your love and your welcome that we would turn away from one way of living and turn toward you. God, I pray that even in this moment as we continue to worship that you would draw us to yourself. And Lord, that drawing, it's not just for us. God, that there's some areas that you want us to travel through and there's sick that you want us to run back towards to tell the story of what you've done in our life the story of your great and grand invitation to all of us. Spirit, let us, let us be the great-grandsons and great-granddaughters of the witness of the woman at the well that said, I know someone who knows me fully and loves me deeply. Let us steward her message towards us.